Hello, and welcome to episode two of Government Girl. In this episode, I will examine the First Amendment, specifically freedom of speech, and how it applies to inciting violence and to the internet. The First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's it. That's all it says about freedom of speech. And it seems pretty straightforward, right? Well, not exactly. The Supreme Court, the branch of government responsible for interpreting our Constitution, has consistently ruled that our rights can be abridged if it is in the interest of public safety. So basically, your rights end where others begin, and we leave it to the Supreme Court to decide where that line is. Reasonable people can and will disagree with Supreme Court rulings and where they think that line should be, but going off of Supreme Court rulings is the best mechanism that we have for ensuring consistency in the application of our Constitution. When it comes to free speech, the Supreme Court has handed down several landmark cases that both limit and protect freedom of speech. Examples of speech that are not protected are real threats, obscenities, defamation of character, blackmail, solicitation of crimes, plagiarism, and incitement of criminal acts. This is why you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So let's talk about how this information applies to the speech that former President Trump gave preceding the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. During the debate on Trump's second impeachment in the House of Representatives, Representative Greg Stube referred to the Brandenburg v. Ohio case. According to Oye.org, Brandenburg was a KKK leader who advocated for criminal acts of violence during his speeches. He was charged under an Ohio law for inciting violence. His lawyer, though, argued that the charge was a violation of his freedom of speech, and the Supreme Court actually agreed. They said the Ohio law was too broad. Through this case, the justices established the imminent lawless action test, which is to say that speech encouraging criminal behaviors alone cannot be restricted. What matters is the likelihood that lawless action as a result of the speech is immediate and accessible. Representative Stube was pointing out that Brandenburg was explicitly calling for violence and his speech was protected. So since Trump's speech was less explicit, it would stand to reason that his speech was also protected. But it isn't exactly that simple. Although Brandenburg was explicit, no immediate lawless action followed his speech, so it didn't pass the law, the imminent lawless action test. But lawless action did happen immediately following Trump's speech on January 6th, and some of those already arrested have stated that they thought they were doing what Trump wanted them to do. So even though Trump didn't explicitly call for violence, his speech may pass the imminent lawless action test. So basically, it isn't always about the actual words you use, but rather what your words result in. I said Trump's speech may pass the test because at the end of the day, I am not a judge, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a member of the Senate responsible for hearing this case. I'm a government teacher. Trump's case has not yet played out, so none of us really know if he's going to be charged, if his speech meets that imminent lawless action test or not. Um, we'll be able to 
look at the result of the Senate trial and possibly a criminal trial if prosecutors decide to go in that direction and see what the experts have to say about it. As always, my goal is not to give you the answer to this question, but to give you the context you need to develop an informed opinion about it. So consider the preceding information and decide for yourself the extent to which you feel Trump should be held accountable for the attacks on the Capitol on January 6th and whether or not you think that his speech meets the imminent lawless action test. Now let's apply free speech to the internet. We have increasingly seen internet companies that allow users to make their own posts like Facebook and Twitter slap fact checks on some of those posts, take some of those posts down, and even temporarily suspend use for users who break their community standards, aka Facebook jail. More recently, following the January 6th attacks on our capital, we've seen sweeping removals and bans of content, including former President Trump. The reasons given for these actions include spreading disinformation, like conspiracy theories, and posts that may incite violence. But there are some conservatives that feel like these measures unfairly target them. Now, I think we all realize that this is not technically a free speech issue because the companies doing the fact-checking and removing content and blocking users are private companies. And the First Amendment only protects us from the government interfering with our speech. And if you didn't realize that at first, I'm sure you have a liberal in your life that was more than eager to remind you of that fact. Um, And while the mass removal of accounts um, are targeted at the right-wing conspiracy theory group QAnon, I also personally know quite a few liberals whose posts have been blocked or removed and who even have been subject to the 24-hour temporary ban. And so I do think it's a little bit of a myth that these fact-checkers are only going after conservative content. Um, I I do see both liberal and conservatives have fact-checks attached to their posts. Um, But certainly the, the recent sort of clean sweeps of accounts have been targeting that QAnon um, conspiracy theory group. Another group that's being removed en masse is those identified as bot or troll accounts. These are accounts that intentionally post divisive and false information uh, or are fake or computer generated users. It is to everyone's benefit that these types of accounts are removed. Um, They are usually not even real people uh, behind the comments. So they are, you know, they don't have any rights. Um, And they're often connected with foreign governments seeking to uh, create divisiveness within American politics. And they do post both liberal and conservative comments. Um, their, their goal is to be divisive. They don't really, it doesn't really matter to them whether it's conservative or liberal. But what about those people who are real people who feel like they are being censored? Sure, some of them may be spreading conspiracy theories, but in a free country, aren't you allowed to do that? Again, this isn't technically a free speech issue. We know that. But... There are some other issues that are important to consider, 
Some argue that social media platforms have become something of a virtual public square, serving as the main place ideas and information flow. Most of our public officials use social media to help get out information about our government. In that case, is it right that a handful of giant tech companies essentially control that enormous flow of information and of ideas? And if not, what's the solution? To help us develop an informed opinion about this, let's take a quick look at how internet companies are regulated, or as the case may be, not regulated. Back in 1996, a law called the Communication Decency Act was passed to help regulate the internet. Most of the act was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, but Section 230 of the act remained. Section 230 exempted internet companies from liability for the content their users posted. So for example, a restaurant can't sue Yelp if a user posts a bad review, even if that review is totally made up. This is a break from how we regulate publishers of books and news. Publishers are held responsible for the content they publish, but internet companies who host users are not seen as publishers since they don't personally review and edit all content on their sites. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a nonprofit aimed at advocating for free speech and innovation on the internet, argues that Section 230 created the conditions that allowed for so much innovation and in the services provided for us on the internet. If a company like Facebook risked being sued for the content on their platforms, they would have to spend a lot of money and resources on people to comb through all the posts before they could be made public and to fight lawsuits. For smaller companies like Yelp, this probably wouldn't be sustainable. And for even larger companies like Facebook, it at best would make them less efficient. We may have to pay for social media in this case, and we may even have to wait a few days or a few weeks for our a post, a, a post to appear public. Up until recently, we have largely relied on these internet companies to regulate themselves, and they really haven't done a great job at it. While we've seen incredible innovation as a result of Section 230, it has also contributed to an uh, online environment that fosters the spread of disinformation and the rise of extremism. Problems not just in the intellectual realm, but also that are very real and dangerous, as we saw on January 6th. Both Republicans and Democrats proposed repealing Section 230. Democrats in the past have threatened to repeal 230 if they didn't do a better job at regulating themselves, hence the rise in fact-checking and suspension of accounts. But then some Republicans argued that if these companies are going to act like publishers and edit content, then they shouldn't have the protections of 230. And in fact, this is what former President Trump vetoed um, in the recent defense spending bill. Section 230 is renewed each year in our annual spending bill, and he wanted it gone. This became the only veto override of his presidency. So for now, 230 per, uh, persists. So the tech companies are left in kind of a sticky spot, balancing regulating and not regulating to please both Democrats and Republicans or risk losing their Section 230 protection altogether. So is repealing 230 the answer? What would that do to the inter to internet inter innovation and the services that we've come to rely on? Do we pass a new law 
being more specific about how internet companies should be regulated? Maybe. That could get sticky, though, if it appears like the government is trying to regulate speech on the internet. Do we just let speech on the internet go completely unchecked, even if it leads to a rise in extremism and violence? How can we check the things that are dangerous while also respecting private companies and free speech? This has always been a fundamental question in our democracy. Where is the line between freedom and collective safety? People can and will disagree about that. And sometimes we can look to the Supreme Court for help. Something tells me it won't be too long before this issue ends up again before the Supreme Court in some form or another. As always, I'm not here to answer these questions for you, only to provide you with the information and context that you need about our laws and our Constitution that might be helpful in helping you figure out where you stand on these issues. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Government Girl. I have a new Twitter handle. You can tweet your questions at GovGirl, G-O-V-G-I-R-L, at GovGirl. Tweet me your questions or ideas for a new episode. Until next time, I'm Government Girl, helping to create a more informed public one episode at a time.